Welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It is but a humble radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, the undisputed, unmutated WHO wild type champion of the world is my co-host, Frank Gaylard. Were you into uh, WWF when you were a kid? Not really. You you didn't have a a Hulk Hogan black doll? Oh, man, they were awesome. I never had them, but I was envious of the kids that would have those. What were they, like 40 centimetres high, plastic Hulk Hogan? And Andre the Giant is awesome in one of my favourite all-time movies, (laughs) Princess Bride. (laughs) Yeah, he is. He is. He is fantastic. He's so big. (laughs) I guess that's why they called him the Giant. (laughs) For some reason, when I read WHO, I thought, WHO sounds like WWE or all those kind of things. So that's, that's what inspired it. And today's episode is an episode where we are wrestling with the brain. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's a, a neuroradiology panel discussion from Radiopedia 2022, hosted by Francis Deng and featuring yourself, Frank, and Tabby Kennedy, who's a neuroradiologist from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Frank, have you got any idea what Wisconsin is famous for? I always picture a photo of cows, so I'm guessing cheese. Yeah, yeah. Cheese is the only one that I'd really heard of, to be honest. Um, and Skalski, Matt Skalski was born there. Yeah, because there's that photo of Skalski of a cow that he took yeah, yeah, from yeah, his yeah. home in Wisconsin. It's like There must be other things, though. Let me, let me quickly Google it and find out what else Wisconsin is known for. Hold on a sec. All right, okay. Yeah, yes, cheese and cows come up number one, so the dairy industry. Um, and then all right, the second one here, this is nomadsunveiled.com. The second thing that comes up is beer brats. Have you heard of those? <laughs> no. It says, if you're looking for a hearty meal, look no further than Wisconsin. The state is famous for its beer brats, which are sausages that have been simmered in beer and then grilled to perfection. (laughs) This podcast always comes back to cheese and meat. Meat. (laughs) They're often served on a bun with mustard and are the perfect meal to enjoy at a tailgate or barbecue. Wow. That poses more questions than it answers. What's a tailgate? You know what a (laughs) tailgate is? That must be the uh, back of a pickup truck, isn't it? I'm going to look that up too. We should ask Scalzi to come in and give us some Wisconsin tips. Yeah, yeah. Tailgate. Here it means drive too closely behind another vehicle. And then, oh, here we go. North American. Uh, a social gathering at which an informal meal is served from the back of a parked vehicle. Ah, there you Typically go. in a car park of a sports stadium. There you huh. go. So I'm just going to have some beer brats at the tailgate. If you could deep fry those beer brats, now you're you're talking like a Scottish meal. So do you really want to go to Wisconsin now? Is it on the bucket list? <laughs> Not really for that. <laughs> Not no. really. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Well, let's get into this week's episode. So this is a discussion hosted by Francis Deng. He's a Radiopedia editor and neuroradiologist at Johns Hopkins. Uh, it was recorded after Frank had just presented an update on the 2021 WHO classification of CNS tumours. And Tabby Kennedy, a talk entitled Knowing Where to Look, Clinical Localizing Signs and the Brain. Both lectures can be found in our neuroradiology lecture collection over on the website. Um, I will say I don't don't go into this episode expecting this discussion to actually teach you the WHO classification of brain tumors or to teach you any clinical localizing signs for that matter. This chat is more about you know the role of the radiologist in the context of these topics. It's more of a, a zoomed out perspective, isn't it, Frank? I think it's a a good advice for our listeners to never go into any of these podcasts expecting to learn anything. Then you might be pleasantly surprised 
Yeah, lower your expectations. All right, let's <laughs> let's get into this panel discussion, and then Frank and I will be back at the end for another chat. I'm now joined by Frank Gaylord and Tabby Kennedy. Those were just two phenomenal talks, and I was hoping to get each of you to talk a little bit more about the content that we covered. Um, I guess we'll start with Frank's talk. You know, uh, the kind of main message that I got is that the WHO classification of CNS tumors is increasingly about molecular diagnostics, and that makes our job as radiologists somewhat more difficult because it's hard to see exactly what what gene is mutated or what you know histone is um, altered. Um, what do you think in the future uh, will be radiologists? role in terms of uh, relating to these kind of increasingly molecular diagnostic feature of tumors when it comes to either you know, predicting the, the tumor classification on a preoperative basis or kind of correlating the, the postoperative histopathology results with the radiographic findings. You know, where do you see the role of radiology going from so there? I, I'm gradually becoming more pessimistic in many ways. Um, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, when I sort of started working as a consultant neuroradiologist, what the future of neuroradiology was in terms of tumor classification, I was really very bullish because I thought we have this tremendous advantage of seeing the entire tumor, not just the bit that gets sent to the lab. And our scans become higher and higher resolution. And, you know, we see some of the hippocampal T2 star weighted or inversion recovery sequences that we do are, are getting almost to the level of sort of a dissecting microscope. And I thought, this is great. We're going to replace pathologists. And now over the last two classifications that become more and more molecular based and histology, which is essentially what we're looking at, becomes less relevant. I worry that really at the end of the day, radiologists are mainly going to be looking at identifying the presence of an abnormality and then involved in the increasingly complicated and important post-operative and treatment effect. But really the role of predicting what a particular histology is becomes an academically interesting exercise rather than one that can really compete with the molecular test in the same way, I think, as pathologists who look down a microscope. I think they probably feel the same way in that histology only gets you so far if the classification is predicated upon molecular uh, changes. Having said that, and, and that paper that you shared with me that Lou included in a link is a really interesting example of where radiology can still have uh, a role where there's a discrepancy between the imaging and the pathology. I think in certain scenarios, and in this particular paper, it was looking at features of oligodendral glial morphology on imaging and how that correlated to 1P19Q assay on uh, fish, where if a radiologist is really convinced it looks like an oligo, it is worth having a second look at the molecular because it may be a false positive or a false negative. Uh, so I think there is a role there and we shouldn't give up and we shouldn't ignore the molecular classification because otherwise we're guaranteed to be irrelevant. Um, but largely, I think the solution here is not developing better radiogenomics. It's just developing wider access, cheaper, more reliable molecular tests. I don't know, Tabby, what, what is your feeling about it? Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, from a imaging perspective, 
I often find it's that question of, is it a tumor? Yes or no. And so it is really that question even before we figure out the molecular diagnostics, it's, should we be biopsying this or is this, you know, a tumor or is this some, you know, tumor mimic? Uh, I find often that's, you know, an incredibly important role that the radiologist will play. And then also in terms of localization. And so uh, to really help guide the surgeon in terms of how to approach that tumor, I think that we definitely add value there. Yeah, that that is pretty concordant with kind of my thinking. Um, you know, Frank, during your talk, you you mentioned a lot about uh, predicting the diagnosis will just be fun for the radiologist, not strictly necessary. You know, do you, um, in an effort to kind of keep your mental muscle sharp, do you still try to make predictions about the histology? Oh, do you put that down in your report? How do you approach um, reporting that? The thing I tell my trainees is your job is to be as precise as you can be in your diagnosis before tipping over into more likely wrong than right and to try and capture your certainty at every step of the way. And so a, a conclusion should read the features as those of a brain tumor, almost certainly a diffuse glioma and the presence of flare T2 mismatch is highly suggestive that this is an astrocytoma IDH mutant. And I think that sort of um, structured conclusion where you're indicating to the clinician how certain you are at each step so that they can factor that into everything else they know about the patient. Uh, I've toyed with the idea of adding uh, percentage certainty to each of those statements. And, and I've been collecting predictions and uh, self-assessing on those to see how well correlated my gut feeling certainty is. I've got about a thousand predictions and I know that when I feel 70% certain, it's about 70% likely that I am right. Uh, but people stare at me like I'm a bit weird already. And I think adding percentage certainty in my reports is taking it a step too far for now. I don't know. Have you ever seen a report that has that kind of really explicit certainty statements, Terry? No. no. <laughs> we probably I mean, I should, think, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think that how people dictate in their reports the degree of certainty is really just based on you know the the kind of adjectives that people use you know um, in terms of that really kind of convey how certain they are about that. So, but we know that the way we use those words is very very heterogeneous, and there's studies yes, showing that there's enormous so. discrepancy in how someone interprets the word most likely. Um, right. So in some ways, it feels cowardly and a sleight of hand to not you know, actually say what you're meaning. Yeah, I've seen some institutions even put in an insert in their reports, uh, most likely means greater than 95% likelihood and, and likely, you know, greater right. than 70% likelihood, which is a kind of a pseudo quantitative way to get around the subjectivity of those adjectives, but it's an interesting idea. And it kind of speaks to the importance of communication and clear communication. So let, let me shift over to Tabby's talk. You know, um, one thing that came to my mind is, um, you know, getting an adequate clinical history is really key to interpretation sometimes. And some of, some of us are uh, not so lucky to get a good clinical history with, with some of these studies, especially in the emergency setting. But if we're so lucky to be able to have an interaction with the you know, a neurology resident, the stroke neurologist, or the emergency clinician at the scanner at the time of um, 
these uh, stroke exams, you know, how do you suggest we most clearly and efficiently try to elicit that history while we're paging through the images? So I'll tell you about our general workflow and protocol that we use at, at Wisconsin, and it's just embedded in how we interpret the, the studies. And so when a patient gets a stroke code CTA, um, the technologist will call the reading room as the non-contrast images are coming over on the scanner. And so we are scrolling through the packs and when the technologist calls over, they hand the phone over to the neurologist who's in the scanner with the patient. And so even though on the requisition, it just says stroke, we don't get any information in the actual history. When we're talking to the neurologist, they'll give us the one-liner. So what's the summary of the assessment? And I will 100% use that, um, that assessment to really try to localize and focus my attention on at least what hemisphere, what vessel I'm thinking is likely involved. Uh, so the presence of a focal neurologic deficit is going to increase my pretest probability that the patient's actually having a stroke uh, because, you know, it, at least at UW, um, we end up doing about, you know, 90, 90 to 100 stroke CTAs a month and only about uh, 10 to 11% of those patients actually have large vessel occlusions. And so having that information up front will really help me to focus my attention on what vessel I think is likely involved and if the patient is actually likely having a stroke. Yeah, well, um, having the right hemisphere is really helpful. Sometimes I find it challenging to distinguish um, like large vessel uh, cortical infarcts versus lacunar infarcts. You know, one, one time recently, um, you know, a patient had unilateral extremity weakness and after not seeing a large vessel occlusion, you know, I, I tried to hone down um, into the lacunar areas and uh, asked the neurologist next to me, do you think this could be thalamic or capsular? And she said, oh yeah, 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 that, that's possible. So I, what kind of symptoms can distinguish these large serotonin infarcts from lacunar infarcts that can produce similar findings? I find that the presence of additional findings, so in addition to either motor or sensory deficits, you might have more than one um, one type of deficit present that is really going to push you towards a large vessel occlusion. So in the dominant hemisphere, you're going to be thinking, of course, things like aphasia um, that are localized to the left hemisphere. And then in the non-dominant hemisphere, you're thinking about things like neglect. Uh, and sometimes the eyes deviated can also point you to a large vessel occlusion, although some papers have shown that you can actually have eyes deviated uh, in the setting of a thalamic infarct. So that's not 100%, but it might point you towards a large vessel occlusion. As I was watching your talk, Tabby, it made me think of the overlap between uh, the clinical side that you discuss in terms of its importance and the pathology sort of that I discuss in, in my talk. And it made me realize that I think the thing that distinguishes senior, really competent radiologists at the peak of their kind of knowledge is not really how much radiology they know, but it's how much other adjacent knowledge they have. The more histology you know, the more pathology and genetics you know, the more clinical um, symptomatology, the more surgical approaches and techniques that you know, the more that makes you a good radiologist. And, and I think one of the challenges with our subspecialization training as it is now is that you start becoming a neuroradiologist from an earlier and earlier age with less and less 
experience of the hospital as a whole. And the training has so much more information in it that it's so much harder to just know your core competency, let alone all the adjacent knowledge. Uh, that that's an area that I think we really need to foster and reinforce the importance of with our trainees. It's very easy to become very myopic and just focus on all the different signs and techniques when they're nowhere near as important as knowing the importance of the clinical sign and what that does to your pretest probability. I couldn't agree with you more, Frank. I mean, honestly, I think that understanding the clinical picture, that is the stuff that really gets me excited. And, you know, to learn more about that is the stuff that I like to focus on now in my career. And I am just incredibly fortunate because I have the opportunity to co-teach a session every other week with a neurologist. So I get to learn every, essentially every, uh, every other week uh, about these clinical signs, and then I can kind of take them back and then hopefully, you know, teach, teach the residents and the med students and our fellows uh, about this stuff. So um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. So from a personal perspective, I started going down the neurosurgery pathway before doing radiology. I did one year of what we call unaccredited registrar. So it's a sort of residency. And then I realized I don't have the attention span to be a neurosurgeon and I don't like to be awake at night. So I shifted to radiology. But I know that in that area, when it comes to the surgical implications, my reports are of much higher quality than when it's purely neurological, because I have much better idea of what's important. And that idea of sitting with a clinician and teaching each other is phenomenally useful. I did that for, for five years with neuropsychiatry fellows. Uh, so for five years in a row, every Tuesday morning, a neuropsychiatry fellow would come and sit next to me and I would teach them MR and they would teach me about dementia signs. And exactly the same thing occurs, as, as you mentioned. You teach each other and you both end up so much stronger in your own um, area. And the, there's so many people in medicine who are protective of their skill set and that feel that you know, radiologists are, are probably way high on that list, that they feel that the last thing you want to do is teach neurologists about imaging because then they won't need you. And, and I passionately disagree with that. Uh, perspective. I think the more clinicians see what you do, the more they understand how hard and nuanced it is, and the more they come and ask you for their opinion, and the better the treatment their patients get. Is that the experience you've had with your neurologists as well? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that uh, we have a, a pretty welcoming reading room environment, and everybody, you know, we've got music going and <laughs> a coffee machine right next door. And so it really encourages uh, our neurology and neurosurgery and oncology colleagues to just come down. And we really love having that interaction. And I think, you know, anytime they come down, I love to learn about what it is they're interested in, in that particular case. And I think that it helps us read the imaging better. From a personal perspective, I can say that the cross-disciplinary interaction is much a, a large part of what inspired me to do neuroradiology. My wife is a ENT, and being able to talk with her and her colleagues about what's clinically relevant in head and neck imaging, and then um, during residency, attending the brain tumor boards and um, the interdisciplinary conferences with the neurologists really inspired me because you could see how 
clinically relevant the neuroradiology interpretations were to clinical management. All right, well, thank you both for joining me and thank you for your company and uh, your phenomenal talks. Thanks to Francis Deng for leading that discussion there. It was um, it was nice of you, Frank, to actually occasionally let Francis and Tabby speak in between your rants. I guess they now know how I feel every week. <laughs> you know, I, I don't get a chance to speak much at home. So uh, you are sort of therapy for me. So yes. you, you're, you're not quite paid to listen, but almost. <laughs> Uh, so Francis will be back with us at Radiopedia 2023 in July, giving a lecture on cerebral small vessel diseases. And Tabby Kennedy will also feature at the conference this year with a new lecture on next CT search patterns and check areas. Frank, a couple of things to chat about related to that discussion. I'm, I'm interested in your idea that what distinguishes really competent radiologists is not necessarily how much radiology knowledge they have, but it is how much you know other adjacent knowledge that they have, pathology, surgery, clinical medicine, etc. Um, but one thing that I often find is that those radiologists who do have the extended knowledge, they spend a lot of time pursuing that. And, you know, they're sitting in their office, reading papers, they're going to meetings, and consequently they they spend very little time actually on the tools reporting cases. It might be that these are independent things, you know, how many cases you report versus how much adjacent knowledge you have. But it makes me wonder, like, how do we define the best radiologist? Well, so I'm a bit conflicted by your comments here because I'm not sure I really agree. Yeah. I think some of the fastest, most efficient workhorse radiologists are those who really have a very good idea of what their referrers want and really understand what the pertinent information to look for and to report is and know what not to mention. But I know what you mean. I think there is a group of radiologists, and, and I probably count myself in that group, who the act of actually generating hundreds of reports is doesn't really get my dopamine flowing at all. That's not what gives me pleasure. Uh, what I get pleasure out of is working out something, yeah. learning something and 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 that does require, you know, less reporting and more reading. Um, so I think there's definitely a thing there. But I guess it's also a question of what you mean by best. Yeah, This is a thing. My kids come home. I've got two boys, as you know. We've got children of similar age, 12 and 10. And they've stopped it now because I always repeat the same thing. But they'll say, oh, Dad, what's, you know, what's your favorite or what's the best music or whatever? And it's like, I don't, adults don't have best. It's too complicated a, a question. It really depends what you need that person for. And I think a department usually needs a mixture. Absolutely. You need people who can churn through reports, but you also need someone to go to when there's something weird and wonderful. Personally, I think the best departments are those that recognize that different people have different skills and allow each person to do the thing that they're best at. <laughs> I've said it again. Most <laughs> competent at. Well, most passionate about, yeah. Most passionate and but also just most efficient at, because I think efficiency is very much depends on what you're reporting uh, and what your demographics are and what your practice are like. So, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I think there's also a group of radiologists who use reading and finding journals as an excuse not to work mm. rather than as a reason to get better. 
and maybe those two can be confused. And picking up on that idea of how important from Tabby's talk uh, and your discussion, how important clinical knowledge is to radiologists, I imagine that, you know, radiologists working outside hospitals in, you know, outside of academic centres might not have a lot of direct access to clinicians to gain that kind of extra feedback and clinical perspective. And so then, you know, thinking as, as Radiopedia now, I was like, I was wondering how can we, through the website, help radiologists in that situation to perhaps get some more of that clinical awareness? Yeah, I think as as Radiopedia gets bigger and we acknowledge or become more and more aware of just how often we're consulted, not just for study, but actually during work hours, I think we do need to and are adding content to help in that way. You know, differential diagnosis is one thing, but pitfalls and reporting yeah. tips, I think, are really important as well. They're surprisingly difficult to add because it's not the kind of thing that there are journals that you can just put a reference to. It becomes much more personal and that's harder. Because this surgeon likes this, another surgeon might like that, but you've got to try and capture some of that clinical information into the articles. But yeah, there is that, uh, what is it, pearls and pitfalls or something like that that we have in the articles. In, in some articles, mm. yeah. And there are more and more articles coming out with, you know, not on Radiopedia, but I mean in journals where the title is, you know, what surgeons want to know. Yeah. And and I think we should probably go and, and have one of our editorial projects at uh, finding some of these articles and including it in our entries. I think that would be really helpful. Obviously, our editorial board is, is largely dominated by radiologists, some radiographers. Uh, I know there's one one neurologist as well, but it would be it would be good to get some more of those other specialties involved, even if they're not on the editorial board, but in creating some of the content. They probably feel like they can't, like they don't, they, they, they can't be involved because it's a radiology website, but it'd be good to try and, you know, nurture that and get a bit more of that information coming through. Maybe even our lectures for the conference yeah, as well, absolutely. getting a few more of those uh, surgical or clinical perspectives uh, and maybe the podcast maybe we could if there's any non-radiologist experts out there in other specialties who think that they have something to contribute maybe they can hit us up i can get some surgeons on if they ever yeah you know stop operating <laughs> or maybe we can record a podcast while they operate would that be ethically dodgy distracting a surgeon in the middle of an operation I think it'd be hard to stop you talking about meat, I would think, and <laughs> <laughs> that would definitely interrupt the surgery. The other thing that I want to chat about um, slash roast you about um, from this uh, discussion was your tracking of the diagnostic <laughs> predictions. That sounds totally over the top uh, and yet totally Frank Gaylard at the same time. So I think it's probably one of the most useful things I've done uh, during my career, just for my listeners who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, for years, every time I issued a report that had some kind of prediction in it, like I think this is most likely a meningioma or a glioblastoma or whatever, I would record that prediction. I used a website called predictionbook.com. Uh, full disclosure, it's uh, owned and operated by a friend. Uh, it's free, but there's still that relationship. But anyway, record that. But more important than just recording the prediction, to follow up the histology. I also recorded how certain I was about the outcome. 
That's the bit, isn't it? That's the key. I mean, I think a lot of people write down the number and follow it up and find out what the the pathology is in the end, but you were tracking how confident you are with your diagnosis. Yeah, and I think that's actually the key. And it's key not just because there's no way you can remember how confident you were at the time in a meaningful Mm -hmm. way. If you don't write that down, you always think that, oh, yeah, I thought that all along. You know, we, we mentioned in a few episodes ago how you can phrase your conclusions to kind of uh, imply that there are some features leaning one way and some features leaning another. And when you reread that, knowing what the outcome is, you always read it thinking, see, I knew it was going to be fungus. Yeah. And and the reality is that at the time you don't. And unless you put a number on it, you won't know what that is. But the other benefit that this has is that then you get to see whether you're correctly calibrated or not. So if you're correctly calibrated, when you say there's a 70% chance that this is X, seven out of 10 times you'll be right and three out of 10 times you'll be wrong. And that means when you're wrong, as long as you're only wrong three out of 10 times, that's expected. You don't feel bad about it. It's not a miss. It's just you're a test. You know, mm-hmm. Picture yourself like a, an assay, like a COVID nasal swab or something with a sensitivity and specificity. As long as you're within those bounds, um, it's helpful. And when you review the case, then you're not trying to work out why you got it wrong. You're trying to see whether there were any features that next time will allow you to be more certain. And I did this for years, um, maybe 10 years. So not every prediction because I accumulated about a 1,000 follow-up questions, like ones where I got the histology and marked myself. And I've stopped now. I got a bit bored with it. Um, But a 1,000 is a pretty big number. That means that for each sort of group of 10 percentile certainty, I had uh, at least 100 in each one. Mm -hmm. And what I could see was that when I don't really know what's going on, I tend to be overconfident. So if I think there's a 50% chance that something turns out to be a meningioma. There's probably something else you're not thinking of. Right. And it's usually that. It's usually that what it turns out to be is not the thing you thought it was number two. It was something you didn't even think about. Mm. And and that process, that changing the way you think about your diagnosis from a I think it is this to a probabilistic way of thinking is tremendously helpful in the way that you then structure your report, the way you look for additional features, the way you read about conditions. I've never gone to the point of including it in reports, but no. I kind of think that we we should. And clinicians find it really helpful in conversations when I say, look, I think this is 80% likely a GBM. Mm-hmm. That really helps them say, okay, that I, I know what to do with this opinion now. That 20% uncertainty is something they can grasp and act on. Have you ever come across another person who's tracking their predictions in a similar way? No. No, okay. <laughs> not, not for radiology. <laughs> If anyone out there is tracking them, then please contact us and let us know that there is another Frank out there. We can start a support group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got your own (laughs) rock curves. I did like that thing you teach your fellows, you know, try to be as precise as you can in your diagnosis until you tip over into being more likely wrong than right. I think that's, that's a bit of a trick, isn't it? But how about this situation? So if I'm reporting the second scan of an enhancing mass or something, And on the first scan, the radiologist stuck their neck out and they gave a specific diagnosis in their conclusion. In my report, can I not try to predict the pathology and just say something like stable appearance of the enhancing left frontal mass and leave it at that? Or is that cheating? 
Well, it depends whether you agree with the previous report or not. So I think you have a responsibility each time you report to put forward the most current, most accurate version of reality that you can based on your right. interpretation. So if you disagree with the previous report, then I think you need to express that. I Absolutely. wouldn't necessarily yeah. use the word disagree, but I would, and I often change, my conclusion will be different to the ones before. And, and I won't just allow people to assume that the previous conclusion is what I believe. I want, you know, whatever I believe to be the thing, to be unequivocally stated. What about you? Yeah, if I agree with what they've said, then I would just say left enhancing left frontal mass and not necessarily give a specific diagnosis for it. Because I know that you know usually it's the scan immediately prior to them getting a biopsy, the answer's coming shortly anyway. Yeah. Um, so there's not a lot of glory to be gained by getting the exact pathology correct in my report. But I do have a lot of colleagues who absolutely, only the very first scan will someone put their neck out. And after that, it's always just the mass or the enhancement is un, you know, unchanged and they won't ever have a go at, at predicting it again. I disagree with that, not just because I, I think that's kind of our job, but mm. and because it means that people then don't have to read through multiple prior reports to finally get an opinion. But more importantly, two radiologists thinking that this is most likely a glioblastoma certainly must be better than only one. Right. So multiple people thinking the same thing, consensus view of experts is is important so yeah i would almost always put a diagnosis as always never cheat never cheat all right never cheat it's okay. never never cheat except when you copy and paste your previous report because oh, nothing has changed yeah 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 yeah. that's that's an absolute gift sometimes when you see your report of the previous one and you're like well i agree with myself well done me <laughs> <laughs> one more anecdote about well done me not that long ago maybe five years or so ago I was reporting a low-grade tumor study comparison report. Mm -hmm. And I'd looked at this for quite some time. And I had come to the conclusion that there was subtle growth. And I remember distinctly sitting there thinking to myself, this patient is very lucky. Because if they just had some other whoever radiologist reading <laughs> their scan, they yeah. would have said that yeah. it was stable. But they have the fortune yeah. of having me looking at their scan and I can detect subtle growth that's going to change management. And I reported it and I sent it on its way and then I realized that I'd compared it to itself. I, I thought that's what you were going. Thought, <laughs> I've done that so many times, so many times where I'm looking at it, I'm going, hmm, yeah, no, I reckon there is subtle growth there. Look at that. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, my God, <laughs> comparing it to itself. And they're like, you do that. I do that with MS ones all the time. I'm like, yeah, oh, look at that. Exactly the same. Oh, these ones are lining up. The slices are perfect. This is great. Look at that. No, same, 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 same. And they're like, ah, oh, damn. It's exactly the same study. Ugh. That is a good anecdote. I like that. Um, all right, let's wrap things up, Frank. How can people get in contact with us? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can also email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and or feedback. We're particularly interested to know which formats of these podcasts you enjoy uh, and particularly want to know if we talk too much. 
and whether we should just let other people talk. <laughs> uh, and the other thing we want is, um, uh, you know, get in on some of the jokes in the feedback, maybe. Oh, the more entertaining your feedback, particularly if it's associated with a five-star review, yeah. the more likely you are to get read out. Yeah, let's have more of those coming in. Um, if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and our virtual conference, which is coming up July 24 to 28. Uh, and in doing so, you'll be helping us to give free conference access to people in 125 low- and middle-income regions. That's a new bit I've added into the outro, Frank. You like well, that? And that's important because that's actually what the whole point of this is about. I don't want to talk about that every week but i think it is you know important for people to know that that is you know one of the main aims of of radiopedia is about access to information and that extends to our courses and our conference it's obviously not possible to do the conference or the course for everybody for free because it's a huge huge undertaking but being able to make it free for a very large number than people. It's, it's probably half or more than half people who access the conference are doing so for free. Um, so it's really important. Uh, how else can people help us, Frank? Oh, you can also help by leaving us a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Beautiful. You're doing that so well. It's so natural these days. All right. And remember, you're not your extra little outro bit that you got to do as of last <laughs> no, week. Okay. Right. And we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay rad. <laughs> it's so good. It's never, I'm never going to tire of it. See you, Frank. See you next week. Bye-bye.